Our text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, it is thrilling for me to start this new book that we study, to open the word, and I pray to have grace to speak over our souls and to have an invitation to Christ and to have reminders of your wonderful, wonderful works in history and today. Please, God, speak to us in your word. Grow us, challenge us, and change us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Can be seated. So, what can God do with you? I mean, what's the real answer, right? I mean, we're in church. We're, you, you know you've got to answer this with theological soundness because you're in church and that's your job. We are supposed to say that God can do with us anything he wants. He is almighty, right? God is almighty. God is all-knowing, yes? God, God parted the Red Sea, right? God, God fed Israel in the desert. God killed Goliath with David's slingshot. Oh, he also created the universe out of nothing. God can do anything he wants. And that means that God is able to do anything with you and anything with me. We know it, right? We know this if we have to answer that question like it's a quiz question, right? If you had A, B, or C, and B is anything he wants with me, God can do, you would know to check that box, right? But do we know it with our hearts when we live day to day to day to day? When you look at your life, do you really believe that God can do something glorious with you? And you know who you are, right? You know where you've been. You know the things you've done in your past. You, you know the opportunities that you have not taken advantage of that you should have. You know your intellectual limits. Do any of us feel those today? You know the weakness of your body. You know the weakness of your willpower. You know how easily you are distracted. You know that you're not worthy. So can God really, really, really do something with you? As we begin this morning, a brand new series, we're going to find some hints in the Word of God that the Lord indeed can do something great with people like you and people like me. God uses all sorts of folks to bring honor to His name. God uses the weak. How many of you are glad God uses the weak? Yeah, right? God uses people who have pasts. How many of you are glad God can use somebody who has a past? <laughs> right? God uses people who are pretty messed up. He, he changes us. He teaches us. He sends us out to serve him. 
So today we're going to look at these two verses, the opening lines, the, the introduction to Ephesians. And what I want us to do is to, to lay the groundwork for a walk through this lovely, lovely New Testament letter. But as we see the basics of the opening greeting of Ephesians, we're going to find four points, four areas of trust that should help us to know what God can do with people like you and with people like me. So let's get started. If you're taking notes, point number one, trust that God can use you. Trust that God can use you. And let's just look at the beginning of verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. What is one of the reasons you and I can know from the very beginning that God can use you and me? The answer is God used Paul. Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul sometime around the year 61 uh, AD, which is in case you could, it's not BC, it's AD. Uh, he wrote that from a Roman prison. And to you and me sitting here a couple thousand years later, we're not surprised. Of course, this is another letter from Paul, right? But if you go back and think for just a moment about the life of Paul, you should think that the idea that God would use that man to write a letter to a set of local churches to help them to know and honor Jesus, that's a big deal. Scripture lets us know Paul, in his younger days, went by the name Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And when we first encounter Saul in Acts chapter 7, it's not a pretty picture. There were a group of Jewish religious leaders. They'd been questioning the deacon, Stephen, about his faith. And Stephen stood before them and he bore witness that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. The crowds got mad. They worked themselves up into a frenzy and they stoned Stephen to death. They committed riotous mob action murder. And Saul was right there giving his approval and holding people's coats. That event had to take place before the year AD 37, though probably about three or four years earlier than that. And Saul would have been in his 20s, most likely. But after that horrible, horrible incident, Saul began to persecute Christians. In Acts, Luke tells us that Saul was ravaging the church. He was throwing Christians into prison. Probably some of those ended up dead. And this caused many believers to be scattered from the area around Jerusalem and they ran for their lives all over the, the, the region. Saul was a scholarly Jew. He was trained by a man named Gamaliel. He was rising in the ranks of the religiously powerful in Jerusalem. And Saul found joy. He loved destroying the church. He participated in a murder. He had thrown Christians into prison. He was doing everything in his power to dismantle the movement of those who say they follow Jesus. Could God ever use somebody like that? Of course he can. And you know already, if you've read your Bible, that he did, right? It began with Saul's conversion. Saul is on the road traveling from the city of Jerusalem to the city of Damascus. And he has a plan. And what interrupted his plan? Jesus showed up. Jesus met Saul, and in a powerful encounter, Jesus converted Saul. 
For the first time, Saul believed in Jesus and knew that to attack Jesus was to oppose God himself. Saul believed, Saul repented, Saul was saved. And from that time onward, Saul preached the truth of Jesus. Now, we can't say exactly when, but sometime after this conversion, he began to use the name Paul in place of the name Saul. For the first three years after his conversion, what we do know is that he preached in the city of Damascus. He was preaching in the city where he was traveling so that he could persecute Christians. Gotta love that, right? And then he fled, he fled to Syria, he fled Damascus. He went by Jerusalem just really briefly and then spent the next decade or so in relative obscurity in Tarsus. So he, he went from this important up-and-coming religious guy to a nobody back in Tarsus. But then somewhere around the year A.D. 44, Barnabas came to find Paul. And he brought him from Tarsus to Antioch to help with the ministry in that city. It was a significant city. Then, during the famine of AD 46, Paul and Barnabas traveled to Jerusalem with a gift from the Antioch church for the struggling believers in Jerusalem. And then in Acts 13, we read about God sending Paul out from Antioch on the first of three significant missionary journeys. What may be most amazing about this journey that Paul takes is the fact that as Paul preached, you know who kept believing? Gentiles. Paul, the, 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 the most Jewish of Jews, has <laughs> Gentile people believing. They believed as Paul proclaimed this gospel. Paul proclaimed a gospel that he had previously tried to destroy to a people he had previously shunned. Acts 15, Paul was a part of the Jerusalem Council. That was AD 49. And there the early church acknowledges, hey, Gentiles don't have to participate in Jewish religious practices or re religious dietary restrictions to be saved. Then after the Jerusalem council, Paul starts his second missionary journey going with Silas. That was probably AD 49 to 52 and covers cities in Asia Minor and cities in Europe. And Paul ministers and he begins to see more and more Gentile converts and during this journey, this second missionary journey, we know Paul began to write letters to churches that he had been through. And those letters Paul wrote, they are preserved for you and me as books of the New Testament. Probably the first book Paul ever wrote that gets recorded in Scripture for us is the book of 1 Thessalonians, his first letter to believers in Thessalonica. Some people might say Galatians was earlier than that, but I don't think so. And then Paul, he's headed back to Antioch at the end of that second missionary journey. As he wraps up his travel, though, Paul, for the first time, visits a significant port city called Ephesus. It's on the southwestern coast of Asia Minor. But the funny thing is, he goes there, but he can't stay. So he sort of pops in, sees the city, and then heads back home to Antioch. But he promises that he's going to return. And we don't know how much time Paul spent back in Antioch, but he leaves again on missionary journey number three. And he goes straight back to Ephesus. The third missionary journey of Paul probably begins in AD 53. And it's a four-year mission trek around that region. And get this, Paul in that journey spent two years and three months of that four-year trip 
living, preaching, teaching, pastoring in the city of Ephesus. Eventually, at the end of that journey, Paul goes back to Jerusalem. There he was arrested, AD 57. There were Jews in Jerusalem. They were mad that Paul kept proclaiming salvation to Gentiles. They had a riot. They had Paul arrested. And Paul was imprisoned for two years in the town of Caesarea Philippi. Then Paul used his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to be tried before Caesar. And Paul was transported from Caesarea Philippi to Rome. And the book of Acts ends with Paul sitting in Rome, awaiting his trial under house arrest. And that would have been between the years 60 and 62. While Paul was in that jail in Rome, Paul wrote at least the letters to the Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and a guy named Philemon. It's what's really cool to me, like one of those historical moments. You ever notice like sometimes in life, moments happen in history and you, you only find out later that was a big deal? I really believe that on one single day, Paul sent two guys out from him, from his house where he was under arrest in Rome, wherever he was, on, wherever he was sitting in, in whatever the Roman imprisonment looked like during that time. He sent two guys out and they were carrying three letters all at once. Tychicus and Onesimus carried Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon all at one time. Can you imagine the one day he says, take those three books of the Bible with you. No one's ever seen them before. That had to be a cool day, guys. Um, History would suggest to us that Paul was released from his Roman imprisonment around AD 62, He spent the next two years traveling, preaching, writing, and then Paul was imprisoned a second time in Rome under the reign of Nero after the great fire of Rome in AD 64. Paul there in that imprisonment wrote 2 Timothy. That was his last book. He did not leave that imprisonment alive, but was executed for his faith. God used Paul to write 13 of your New Testament books. 13 of the 27. Paul preached to people in multiple cities, from multiple backgrounds, on multiple continents. Paul suffered greatly for the name of Jesus. And Paul was faithful to follow Jesus and serve Jesus until he laid down his life at the end of his days. Now, It's good for you all to get the history lesson about who wrote the book of Ephesians. But one thing you should try to grasp, friends, is the unlikeliness of this author. Paul hated, when he was Saul, he hated Christians. He hated the church. He helped a mob murder one of the first deacons. And our deacons would say, that's not good. (laughs) Amen, says Job. (laughs) But God forgave Paul. And Paul was used by God, even from a Roman prison. God used Paul to write down words that you and I read and study and memorize and live by nearly 2,000 years later. 
And if God could use a man like Paul with a past like Paul's, if God can turn Paul to God's purposes, how could you ever possibly think that God might not use your life? Friends, the God we serve is mighty to save. He is mighty to change people like you and like me. He moves the hearts of kings. He claims the hearts of sinners. He makes us into new creations. He delights in taking the weak and the foolish of the world and demonstrating his own power through them. And if God can use a man like Paul with a past like Paul's, he most certainly can use someone just like you or just like me. Do you think that you might be too weak to be useful to God? You ever let yourself have that thought? You ever think that because of your past sin, you're too damaged to serve God? You ever think that you lack enough brains or enough social status to be used by God? Repent of those beliefs, Christians. Trust that God can use even you for his glory. Because he used Paul, and that was far more unlikely than he would use you. Second point this morning. After trusting God can use you, trust in God's word. Trust in God's word. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So Paul identifies himself at the beginning of this letter as an apostle of Christ Jesus. That is more than a claim that Paul is making so you know which Paul is writing this letter. This is a claim of Paul's new identity and the role he plays in his ministry. Paul was an apostle. What's the word apostle mean? It it indicates to us that Paul was sent out by Jesus, but, but not just a servant sent out. Paul, as an apostle, was sent out by Jesus with the authority of Jesus. Can you imagine if Jesus, if I sent you somewhere with a blank check signed and said, you can use this to accomplish what you need, right? You would be sent out with the power to use, well, no money because there's none of, but you know, you get the idea. You would have my authority to do things, to transact business under my name. Paul was sent out with Jesus' authority to tell us things in Jesus' name. So when we read this letter in the opening line that it's from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, we have to immediately recognize this is a letter that is claiming divine authority. Paul's not writing just a helpful bit of advice. Paul's writing to us the very word of God. Paul's writing scripture, holy scripture. Paul has written the word of God under the authority and the inspiration of God. And what we will read in the book of Ephesians, it is the very voice of God speaking to us. What we will read in Ephesians is as true and trustworthy as is the God who made us. What we will read in Ephesians is as binding over your life and mine as is any word ever spoken by God. So over the next few months, as we read through, as we study Ephesians, trust in 
God's word. It is scripture breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. It is the word of God living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. This is the word of God, not from any man's own interpretation. No, Paul, like the prophets of old, was carried along by the Holy Spirit as he recorded for us the very word and very intent of God. And even now, as you think that through, let it call you to submit yourself once again to the authority of the word of God. There's no voice you have ever heard. There is no teacher you've ever heard. There's no spiritual experience that you've ever had. There's no vision or dream or anything else any human has ever claimed that is as authoritative as the written down word of God that we hold in our dear hands today. Third point. Let's keep going. Still awake with me, by the way? Okay, I'm just checking. I I never know. Trust in God's sovereignty. Third point is trust in God's sovereignty. Look at verse 1 again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, how? By the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So the next thing we see in this greeting that Paul wrote down is that Paul is claiming to be an apostle by the will of God. Paul was not looking for a role in the Christian church as he was traveling to Damascus. He was opposing the church when Jesus grabbed him, changed him, and rescued him. But Paul recognizes here that whatever Paul is, wherever Paul is, however Paul is used, it is all being done by the will of Almighty God. Psalm 115.3, this morning we read, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God's word says, listen to me, God does all that he pleases. In this instance, we are sure all means all. This is an important concept to grasp, friends, and it challenges your beliefs at their very core. Your entire worldview will be different based on whether or not you really believe that our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Does God really do every single thing God pleases? Oh, I hope you get that. In our circles... If you hear believers talking about the sovereignty of God, what are they usually talking about? Salvation, right? The general setting in our circles is we're going to talk about salvation. We're going to talk about predestination. We're going to talk about free will. We're going to talk about uh, sovereignty when we're talking about Calvinism and Arminianism, right? That, that, that always pops up. And that's a good place to talk about the sovereignty of God because the sovereignty of God's all over this discussion, But the sovereignty of God is much bigger than a a discussion or an argument over the intricacies of salvation. That God is sovereign points to God's power and God's authority. That God is sovereign over all means that God rules over every single thing that is. This is not just about salvation. It's a part of a basic theism. It's a, it's a basic belief. If you believe in the real God of the Bible, you must believe in a sovereign God. In, 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 in this wonderful book, Chosen by God, the late R.C. Sproul 
tells about trying to explain the sovereignty of God to a group of students. And he writes this. This is a good quote. Quote, I tried to explain to the class the idea that God, I'm sorry, I tried to explain to the class that the idea that God foreordains whatever comes to pass is not an idea unique to Calvinism. It isn't even unique to Christianity. It is simply a tenet of theism, a necessary tenet of theism. That God in some sense foreordains whatever comes to pass is a necessary result of his sovereignty. In itself, it does not plead for Calvinism. It only declares that God is absolutely sovereign over his creation. God can foreordain things in different ways. But everything that happens must at least happen by his permission. If he permits something, then he must decide to allow it. If he decides to allow something, then in a sense he is foreordaining it. Who among Christians would argue that God could not stop something in this world from happening? If God so desires, he has the power to stop the whole world. To say that God foreordains all that comes to pass is simply to say that God is sovereign over his entire creation. If something could come to pass apart from his sovereign permission, then that which came to pass would frustrate his sovereignty. If God refused to permit something to happen, and it happened anyway, then whatever caused it to happen would have more authority and power than God himself. If there is any part of creation outside of God's sovereignty, then God is simply not sovereign. If God is not sovereign, then God is not God. If there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God would ever be fulfilled. Perhaps that one maverick molecule would lay waste all the grand and glorious plans that God has made and promised to us. If a grain of sand in the kidney of Oliver Cromwell changed the course of English history, so our maverick molecule could change the course of all redemption history. Maybe that one molecule will be the thing that prevents Christ from returning. In verse 1, when Paul affirms that his apostleship is by the will of God, He points us to the fact that the will of God, the ultimate will of God, the sovereign will of God is not ever thwarted. If indeed the will of God could ever be beaten, God is something less than he reveals himself to be in Scripture. Bible believers have a sovereign God. Now, one other element in this passage points us to the sovereignty of God in verse 1, and I want us to notice it real quick. Note the from and the to. Paul is writing. Paul is writing while under guard in Rome, a prisoner. And he's writing, as our text says, to the church in Ephesus. And this means that God has people, saved people, in Ephesus. Ephesus was an important city in Asia Minor. Ephesus was not the Roman capital of the region, but the governor lived there, and he did most of the political business there. The city of Ephesus was on a prominent waterway. 
Any dignitary that came to the region came through Ephesus first and then went on his way because there were three intersecting highways that passed through the city of Ephesus. Some people would tell you that the city of Ephesus in the first century had a population of over a quarter million people. Many people uh, will tell you that there was a theater unearthed in the ruins of Ephesus that clearly could have seated, according to all the ancient accounts, 25,000 people. How would you like to sit in an arena built with first century technology that's bigger than T-Mobile downtown? Y'all think that through on your own, okay? Ephesus was rich, it was important, and it was beautiful. At the center of Ephesian life was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Remember, you remember hearing about the seven wonders? The temple to Artemis or Diana, this gigantic marble structure was there. This temple had tons of columns and it was just huge. It housed a, a stone, this ugly looking stone that the Ephesians claimed fell from heaven as a gift to them from their goddess. And thousands of people worshipped and worked at the temple. Many of the people who worked there worked as temple prostitutes. It was a vile, dirty business that was carried on in the name of the popular Ephesian religion. So for Christians who lived in Ephesus, there were a lot of pitfalls to avoid. The city was wealthy, so the pull of the world would have been really strong. The sexual immorality of the city was rampant. The worship of Artemis, later the worship of the Roman emperor in Ephesus, would have presented a number of challenges to your faith, maybe challenges to your safety. In Acts 19, we read the story of a riot that broke out in Ephesus because the local craftsmen were mad that the Christians were not for idol worship. By the way, get that. A city revolted and wanted to do violence to Christians because Christians would not support what they loved. Hmm. <laughs> Ephesus was a tough place to imagine anybody following God in, but God made it happen. The book of Acts, the book of Ephesians, the book of Revelation, we see that God had people there. Significant Christian leaders of the first century spent significant time in Ephesus at that church. Priscilla and Aquila were in Ephesus for a time. Paul spent two years and three months in Ephesus. Apollos was there. Timothy was there. Onesiphorus was there. Tychicus was there. The apostle John lived there. A church could not have a better lineup of former pastors, teachers, and leaders than Ephesus had from the 50s to the 90s A.D., and that should highlight for us the sovereignty of God because God took Paul from being a God-hater to being an apostle and even from a jail cell, Paul writes a letter to Christians in Ephesus, a tremendously difficult city. God moved to save souls in one of the darkest, most licentious, most ungodly places on the planet. How could God do that? Because God's sovereign. Now, just a little aside for us today. I want you to just try with me, Christians, to imagine Christians living in a city that you might think of as a bit too famous, a bit too materialistic, a bit too given to sexual immorality, a bit too ungodly. I want you to use your imagination and see if you can think of a city like that one. I think if you try really hard, you'll get there. Here we are, sitting in Las Vegas, 
What is our city known for? It's a place given over to sinful excess of every style. I, I tell people, you know, for good or for ill, there's not one single thing that you might want you could not find in this city. Here we are, though. Here we are. We are Christians. Gathered, we are a church. Living and worshiping right here. How does that happen? God is sovereign. And if God was sovereign enough to save you, and if God was sovereign enough to build a church here in Las Vegas, and if God was sovereign enough to build a church in the city of Ephesus, and if God was sovereign enough to save Paul, you and I have evidence that God is sovereign enough to do every single thing he pleases. So Christians trust in the sovereignty of God. Now, nerdy moment here. There are scholars who would suggest to you that this, first, this letter of Ephesians was not actually written specifically for the church in Ephesus. Some of the old manuscripts, some of the important manuscripts, the, the two words in Ephesus in verse 1 are not there. It talks about to, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus, but it doesn't say in Ephesus. But in all of the old manuscripts that have headings, all the manuscripts that have labels... It's always been assigned, understood as Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So what happens here? I believe what happened here is pretty simple. Paul did write this letter to the Ephesians, and it was intended for other churches as well. You study this book, and you'll see that it reads like a letter that's intended for more than one church in Asia Minor, not just one. So probably here, that what Paul did was he told Tychicus to escort Onesimus from Rome back to Colossae, because that's where Philemon lived. Onesimus was Philemon's runaway slave. Remember? So Paul says, Tychicus, you, you, walk, Philemon, or you, walk, you walk Onesimus back to Philemon so we can deal with that issue. And take a letter to the church of Colossae. But since you guys are going to your first stop once you get you know, through, off the boat is going to be Ephesus, I've got another letter for you. It's, it's a more general letter that I want you to send first to the church in Ephesus, and it will probably go from Ephesus all around the circle of churches in that region. Does that seem un, unreasonable to you? You ever read Revelation? Yeah. We start with Ephesus, then what? Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamum, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Am I missing one? Who am I missing? Sardis, did I say? Anyway, and, and then, of course, Colossae was right in that same region. And I'll tell you what. If you say, this wasn't to, the, to Ephesus, this was to all those churches in that area. Okay, fine. I believe the fact that God had believing Christians in all of those cities testifies to the glorious sovereignty of God because they shouldn't have been able to have a church survive there. God did God stuff. All right, there's the history stuff covered. Ephesians was written by Paul. It was written while Paul was under house arrest in Rome. It was written to Ephesus and the churches around there to be circulated around the churches there around the year AD 61 or 62. Um, Maybe, just maybe, by the way, when you looked at the end of Colossians in 416, when Paul says, read the letter that will come to you from Laodicea, that might be a reference to this book because Paul knew it would go through Laodicea before it got to Colossae. Who knows? Now, one more last thing I want you to catch from the greeting in this letter before we go on. Point number four. Trust in Christ for salvation. 
We've got trust that God can use you, trust in God's word, trust in God's sovereignty, trust, that Christ, trust in Christ for salvation. End of one through two says the letter is to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the end of verse one, the two words used for the people who are going to receive this letter. Paul calls them saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Those are glorious little pictures of how you're saved, of what it means that you're saved, and of what happens after you're saved. Part of the word faithful is the simple truth that the people who who have been saved are believers. Faithful indicates having faith, having believed. And that reminds us right away that the way that you and I become children of God, the way that we have been forgiven by God, is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christianity is different than any other world religion in the fact that you and I will never teach, if we're being biblical, we will never teach that anybody is made right by their behavior. We do not behave well or do the right religious ceremonies to get into the favor of God. Instead, we are brought into the favor of God when we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing, not behaving, is the way to salvation in Jesus. And those who have truly entrusted their lives and their souls to Jesus, what does the Bible call us? It calls us saints. Look around this room and tell me if you buy that. That's the word Paul uses for Christians, and it's a precious word. The word saint in Greek is a play on the word for holy. So if you look at someone and you say that they're a saint, you're calling them a holy one. Again, look around this room. You do what you think. But stop and think. Stop and think. You and I, if we know ourselves, we know we're sinners, right? Anybody here want to say, oh, not me, I'm pretty good? No takers. We're not saints by our nature. We're not even saints by our behavior. This is the glory of the gospel. When sinners who deserve the judgment of God believe in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation, God gives us a brand new identity. No longer are you under the wrath of God. Instead, God cleans your accounts and credits your account with the perfection of Jesus Christ. So even though you know how bad you've been, you know how bad you sometimes can still be, God looks at you through the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and calls you Saint Holy One. And then there's one more application of the word faithful because I want to keep it. What does faithful also mean? Does it mean believing? Yes, it does. But it also means faithful in the way that you think of faithful. If I talk about a, a, a husband being a faithful husband, do I mean he's a believing husband? Maybe, but what else might I mean? I might mean that he's changed, that he is faithful in keeping his word, his vows. Those who believe in Jesus, who are made saints by God, they are changed by God. And we begin to to turn away from sin and begin to obey the commands of God for the glory of God. Later in this letter, Paul's going to tie faith and obedience together like this. In chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast 
For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you trust in Christ to make you holy. You believe in Jesus. You renounce your sin. And God makes you into a saint of God by his decree. And then, once that's happened, you can begin to live a faithful life as his workmanship created for good works in Christ Jesus. And then verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here Paul gives you a sweet little greeting for the believers. It combines Jewish elements and Greek elements of typical greeting. And it combines two important words, grace and peace. If you're given grace... That means you are given kindness or favor that you don't deserve. You ever been given kindness or favor that you don't deserve? I bet you have. When we trust Jesus, we find that we are under the grace of God. God looks at us with favor that Jesus earned, not us. But to be at peace with God is to be at an end of hostilities. Jesus, because of his sacrificial death on our behalf, Jesus has made it possible for believers to be at peace with God. Our sin, your sin, would make you the enemy of God. Do you understand that? If you're left in your sin, you're behaving, you are living, you are identifying as enemy, hater of God. But God, because of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, that takes that enemy status away and makes us at peace with God. And it's more, than, it's, it's more than just at peace. It's in a loving family relationship with God. We'll talk about that next week. More than just a greeting here, this text reminds us that we must first have the grace of God if we're going to find ourselves at peace with God. And our grace and peace come to us from whom? Who does it come from? God the Father and God the Son. The perfect, glorious, triune God of the Bible is fully at work in our salvation. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit work in unison to bring about our salvation. No person of the Godhead is working at cross purposes with the others. Listen to me, friends. This will help your theology. Jesus never once tried to do with us something the Father didn't say. This is what we're doing. The Father and the Son are in lockstep in how they will save, in who they will save, in when they will save, in every bit. And the Holy Spirit's right there in the process. There is no, no cross-purposes at all in the Godhead, in the Holy, the one true God who is God in three persons. The one true God is united in bringing us grace. We trust in Christ to become holy and be granted salvation. When you read a letter like this one, folks, you got to see that stuff. Okay, a lot of old letters start with a greeting, right? And what did we learn today? Who wrote this? To whom he wrote it? And he gives us a blessing. But friends, can we see that there's a little bit more in the word of God and in the lives of these people for us to see than just, hey, how are you? This is glorious. We see in this greeting calls to trust God. Are you ready to trust God? Trust that God could use you. Trust in God's word. 
Trust in God's sovereignty. And for some of you, oh dear friends, I urge you, trust in Jesus Christ to find salvation. Will you bow with me and pray?